It's July 23rd, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories, and then we'll get a couple of project updates from two news guests. And joining us today is uh, Shay Chan Hodges from Maui to tell us about her new book called Lean On and Lead. And then we'll talk to Tony Marzi from Hawaii Tech Works to tell us about an upcoming event called Tech Tuesday. Finally, we've invited researchers from the Schmidt Ocean Institute to tell us about some of the work they're doing on the research vessel Falkor at Station Aloha. We'd, of course, love your questions and comments as part of the conversation, so please be ready to call in or tweet us. But first, the headlines. On Friday, the second Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or High Seas, mission will come to an end, and its six crew members will return to the real world after spending four months in a remote habitat on the slopes of Mauna Loa. The commander of the mission, Casey uh, Stedman, said, uh, well, he is a U.S. Air Force Reserve navigator and a dedicated advocate of STEM education and space exploration. He and his five crewmates shared a thousand square foot inside the solar-powered geodesic dome. Crew cohesion and team performance were the focus of this second of several missions, which involved evaluating moods, stress, interaction, and cooperation. In addition, each crew member was able to conduct their own research. Those experiments included testing 3D-printed surgical tools, studying the effects of lighting on plants, recycling and reusing trash and other waste, and ways to improve the design and execution of spacewalks. While Commander Stedman didn't have a research project, he handed, uh, handled the interaction with the press and the public, building upon his own passion for public outreach and space advocacy. Uh, in his latest blog post, uh, Stedman writes, I've become an advocate for, uh, for using social media as a way to talk about science and space exploration. I've encountered so many people who either don't realize there was still a vibrant space exploration program or had negative opinions about it. My goal is to change that. And of course, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had uh, Kim Binstead on, and we talked about high seas. And uh, there, I guess, um, you know, the project is coming to an end. I actually saw um, Brian Shiro talk about the overall project in a in a NASA event that he was uh, presenting at, and um, it was kind of interesting because you know, I guess uh, there was a lot of obviously external experiments that were given to them. Right. Uh, to actually conduct. Now, so this was, I think, a four-month mission. Mm-hmm. The next one will be an eight-month mission, and then after that, a year-long mission. They've already put out a call for equipment that people want tested or experiments that the crew could carry out in the next mission. So if you are a scientist somewhere and you said, well, this is something that could work in a long-term space analog mission, um, you can basically suggest it for them to do. But definitely outreach is a big part of it. Brian Shearer, we know he's passionate about that. Stedman has been blogging quite a bit about basically these interactions his most recent post, you know, he said that his photos from the high seas habitat were featured on the official blog of Instagram. Oh. And his mind was blown because, you know, he had maybe 47 Instagram followers. And after that, it was like 8,200 Instagram really? followers and still going up. Um, and they were on Reddit. I noticed there was like an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. So I, I do like these outreach activities. But uh, there's more of these missions to come, and we're definitely going to be covering yeah, them. Yeah, and uh, one, of, one of Brian's uh, comments uh, when he did his presentation was about a, um, a solar flare that they actually injected into one of their missions, <clears throat> and they had to take cover in one of the uh, uh, lava tubes. Well, that, that's kind of a cool test, Yeah, too. no kidding. Absolutely. 
The Navy has invested $9 million into a wave energy test site located off Marine Corps Base Hawaii in Kaneohe, a research partnership between the Navy and the University of Hawaii. The wave energy system is expected to be the first test site in the country to be connected to an active power grid. The site will continue research in Kaneohe Bay that began in 2009. That test, which was conducted by Ocean Power Technologies, ran through 2011. The Navy is now planning to establish two additional test sites at different depths of water. This fall, a wave energy device will be deployed at the 100-foot berth used uh, in previous studies. In addition, preparations will be made for deployments at depths of 200 feet and 260 feet. The Navy funding will be used to reduce deployment costs and reduce risks. The device is is a prototype called Azura, developed by the Northwest Energy Innovations, able to rotate 360 degrees and generate power from both vertical and horizontal wave motions. It will be located relocated in uh, to Hawaii from its current test site off of the Newport, uh, Oregon. The Natural Energy Institute and its marine services partner, Sea Engineering Incorporated, will conduct underwater surveys, handle unscheduled maintenance issues, and set up diving and remotely operated vehicle facilities for rapid response capability. The Navy has set a goal of producing half of its shore-based energy from renewable sources by the year 2020. And while this research is being conducted in Hawaii, it is seen as key to helping projects in other areas like Alaska, the Pacific Northwest, California, and even the Northeast. Now, we've been uh, following this story for uh, quite some time, and it's an interesting project to actually see the ability to, you know, generate uh, energy from the waves. And, you know, it's not your typical, I I guess, maybe intuitive sense that, you know, the waves would hit this and and it would actually spin something. But uh, these devices are actually kind of bobbing up and down Mm -hmm. because of the uh, ocean currents and as well as the wave motion and as it says, you know, the vertical and horizontal motions actually help produce the energy. And so this is actually the second generation of this device, the Azura device um, being produced by this company based in Oregon. It'll be in Kanaohe Bay at least a year. It's uh, basically a much longer length of time that they've ever done a test. And one of the things that I saw is they're definitely interested in how their device will handle Hawaii wave action, Mm -hmm. which, of course, you can basically be expecting much larger wave and ocean swells than you might have seen in Oregon. So that'll be interesting. Of course, with those two additional test sites, the Navy will be looking to fund two other companies with their own technologies to, I guess, kind of compare them against each other. So we'll be watching for that. But there are skeptics about wave energy, one, because the the ocean and the surface of it, especially near shore, is not the most hospitable environment. And in terms of the cost to return versus, say, solar and wind energy and mm-hmm. such. So, But it's good that Hawaii continues to be at the forefront of this. Definitely a, an alternative uh, source. The the interesting thing is, you know, what you see on top of the surface is probably uh, just, you know, like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's a lot underneath. For sure. And I wouldn't suggest people sort of <laughs> swimming or boating in that area because I think the underwater uh, element is, is huge. True. Anyway, finally, on the uh, tech calendar, some upcoming events we wanted to share with you. Last week, we told you about the first investments made by Maui-based investment fund Mbloom uh, into Flickdate and Ozolio, companies uh, founded by the fund's managers. To address questions raised by local startup and VC community, there will be a town hall meeting with Arbin Kreidzui, um, Nick um, 
Bikinik and Carl Fuchs, and that's tomorrow at the Box Jelly in Kakako at 6.30 p.m. On Saturday, there will be an organic field day in Waimanalo. The UH College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources is offering a sustainable agriculture open house at its Waimanalo Research Station. They'll be showing off crops as well as tools and different techniques. Marking 20 years of organic research, CTAR invites the public to that station on Ahiki Street in Waimanalo, and that'll be from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on July 26th. And next week, Biz Gym is hosting a summer camp for kid entrepreneurs. Camp Biz Gym will run Monday through Friday, July 28th to August 1st at Mid-Pacific Institute. The program will teach kids how to make a great online video from scripting and shooting through editing and publicity offered in partnership with the Entrepreneurs Foundation of Hawaii. You can go to bizgym, that's B-I-Z-G-Y-M.com for more information. Now, joining us is uh, Shay Chan Hodges, and she's calling in from Maui, and we wanted to hear about her book, Lean On and Lead. Welcome to the show, Shay. Thank you very much. Hi. So, Shay, um, tell us, yeah, uh, you um, published this on iBooks, and I wanted to get a sense of uh, what a, I, I think you have some pretty notable uh, contributors to this book. I do. Um, so, first of all, just to explain the platform, it is on the Apple iBooks platform, mm-hmm. which means um, it's a digital book, but it's more than a digital book. And I don't know if you got a chance to look at it, Bert. Yeah, I, I did. It's, there's uh, some interactive uh, uh, features in it, and I want you to explain that. Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of people read digital books on Amazon, Kindle, on Nook, on their various um, devices, and they're really very similar to a regular paper book. It's just in a digital format, and maybe you can take some notes or, you know, um, save sections, that kind of thing. But the Apple iBooks platform allows for this whole additional level of interactivity um, that's pretty unique. So, you have all these different widgets that have interactive graphs. You have audio, video, um, and then you can also link further. So I think, um, and you don't have to have access to the Internet while you're reading it. So it's like, I mean, some people say it's like Harry Potter in a book. Mm-hmm, um, it's mm-hmm. just really, really different from a regular digital book. And that also, there's also um, additional levels beyond that. And so um, to go to the notable people in my book. I have, it's interviews with parents. It's actually called um, Lean On and Lead, Mothering and Work in the 21st Century Economy. So um, it's mostly women, mostly mothers, but there's also some dads. And then um, it's interviews with people from around the world, really, but I do have a lot of Hawaii people, and specifically, and if you're following elections, um, mm-hmm. I have um, Congresswoman Colleen Hanabusa, U.S. Senator um, Brian Schatz, um, Lieutenant Governor Shansitsui, and I have an interview, I don't know if you saw it, with um, State Senator Jill Takuda. So it's kind of cool because um, it just gives you much more of a personal feel for what's going on with families and parents in our country, and then you also have all this added data. How long, uh, how long did it take you to produce this, uh, this uh, iBook? Well, um, I actually started it last spring, so I've been working, you know, I, I first published it in November, but um, my work isn't done. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I published, the, that's the other great thing about an interactive um, Apple iBook is you can update it, and when, um, like the copy that you downloaded, the mm-hmm. next time I do an update, you'll also have that update, um, the next update. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm really... Um, passionate about this whole subject, about the whole balance of work and family um, and how our society doesn't really support that and what the economic impacts of it are. So what I want to do is continue 
to make it more and more robust. So one of the things is, um, like I said, I have all these legislators in the book, but they're not talking as legislators. They're talking about their own personal situation. And I think that's how we're going to have change. And I think part of it, too, is to show people what, how diff- what the broad diversity is within families, but then also what all the commonalities are. So mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm adding, um, I went to Washington, D.C. recently, and I met a lot of tradeswomen, women who um, work in non-traditional manual labor jobs, and I want to add them. Um, I also want to add a lot of people who have expertise in Title IX, because I think that's really important. So my work is, I got, you know, I did a lot in about eight months, but I'm still working on it, and I'm not quite sure when my work will be done. Are you, uh, <laughs> are you doing most of the uh, sort of uh, uh, production work as well? I mean, are you doing the technical aspect of uh, putting the content together? Yes, I am. Cool. So um, I've, you know, done all the writing, the graphics, the technology, which is, um, you know, I'm kind of a Luddite, so <laughs> it's sort of interesting that I'm actually doing all this technology. Um, you know, the graphics, the, I have um, all different kinds of interactive graphics that I've had to put together. So I had to learn quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, so um, Shay, where can people find uh, your book? Um, so you can go online. Uh, well, you actually have to have, just to make clear, it is on the Apple iBookstore platform, which means you have to have an iPad or a Mac updated with Mavericks, mm-hmm. which is the latest OS system. And you just go to the iBookstore, and then you either search my name, Shay Chan Hodges, or Lean On and Lead, and then you can download it. And if you don't have those platforms and you just kind of want to know more about it, you could go to my website, um, www.leanonandlead.com. Sounds All right. good. We'll put it on our show notes. And uh, thanks, Shay, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Cool. Now, joining us is Tony Marzi, and he's here to tell us about an upcoming Tech Tuesday event in Hilo. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hey, Bert and Ryan. Thanks for having me. Wow, you sound so clear, like you're in the studio with us. Very, very good. So um, we love covering, uh, I certainly, I personally love covering all of the tech that's going on on the Big Island, Hawaii Island, and in Hilo in particular. And when we can, we do like to spread the word about the Tech Tuesday, the monthly events that you do. But for those that are new to that, um, what's the what? where did the Tech Tuesday come from and what do you accomplish with it? Sure. So we've been hosting Tech Tuesdays for just a little bit over a year now, and uh, it has its roots in a, in a collaboration between uh, Hawaii Tech Exchange, Don Kozak, and myself kind of talking about what are some of the next things that we can do to bring people together and get them talking and really, uh, you know, just share some of the great things that are happening in our own backyard. And so every month, the last Tuesday of every month that uh, we get together, we have a little palhana, and we've been hosting it over at our site over at Rainbow Falls at Hawaii Tech Works. And, um, I think it's been, uh, been a hub for a lot of people, so it's been a lot of fun. So you've got a couple of uh, cool talks coming up on Tuesday. Who's uh, who's on the lineup? Sure. First up, we have the CEO of HTDC, Robbie Milton, and we'll be discussing a new partnership that we're having to expand over on the Big Island uh, with our community. And then following up that, we have Sandra Dawson from the 30-Meter Telescope. And her talk is about how the impact of that project with the, uh, on the Big Island will have for the tech community. And so... We're happy to be able to 
bring a platform for for those kinds of organizations. So tell us a little bit about this partnership. Um, now, uh, of course, the HEDC works with other um, locations and facilities. They're they're trying to support startups and entrepreneurs across the state. Um, and I think that, you know, covering both uh, Hawaii Tech Works and High Tech Exchange as well as the HEDC, it seemed like a natural that uh, you start to work together. What What's the nature of this partnership? Sure. So and it really is about our, our, our compatible and, and very much aligned uh, uh Visions about how we go about and uh, achieve our goals. Similar missions, similar similar activities. One of those activities is our live streaming and broadcast, and really about uh, you know they host a number of workshops. We say, hey, we'd love to be able to show those workshops to our members with mm-hmm. you know on-site viewings, and uh, in addition to you know drop-ins if they have uh, members for their facilities, uh, and we have a co-working space. We'd love to be able to open our doors to them as well if they happen to be in town, and vice versa. And uh, so as we, you know, look at building our, our regional capacity as a whole, it's really just saying what, what resources can we share and how do those align. So, so this, uh, this partnership is actually a pretty uh, significant announcement because, uh, uh, you know, HCDC is primarily located on, on Oahu. I mean, they have, they have presence on Maui, but uh, this is, this is a, a great resource for them on the Big Island. I, I think so. And I think it's also pointing to, the, the, the bigger picture here that um, other parts of the state of Hawaii are really recognizing that um, as a whole, if we're working together, if we're talking, sharing the, our different activities and um, how we can support each other, we're going to be a lot better off. And uh, as far as the presentation from the 30-meter uh, telescope, again, another project that we cover quite a bit, um, what's going to be the focus of that presentation? I think that uh, there's a recognition that within that project that a number of the uh, different opportunities that come up are not going to be strictly scientific, but they're going to be other areas of, of technical, um, you know, needs that are, that are coming together. And so uh, a lot of our audience happens to be current uh, university students or recent graduates, and I think that that's a perfect uh, uh, community to have them talking back and forth about what could be happening and, you know, in the Hilo community. That's cool. So there's a there's a good chance for some uh, employment opportunity with 30 meter telescope. I, I think there's a good chance of that. Absolutely. Sounds yeah. good. So uh, where can people find out more about the Tech Tuesday? Sure. Please visit our website HawaiiTechWorks.org, and also find us on Twitter at Hawaii Tech Works as our handle, as well as Facebook. Um, and uh, otherwise, uh, visit our YouTube channel, uh, and uh, you'll be able to jump on for a live stream if you can't attend in person. That sounds, that sounds great. good. Yeah, great. Thanks, yeah. Uh, Tony, for joining us. All right. Thank you so much. And, of course, that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Dr. Erica Gertza and uh, Carly uh, Weiner and Chantel Chang. What has the Schmidt Ocean Institute uh, been facilitating with the University of Hawaii on ocean research? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. Give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And we're live here in the studio, and we're monitoring Twitter, so you can tweet us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Two and a half weeks before the primary election, listen to the latest gubernatorial forum on Hawaii Public Radio. Governor Neil Abercrombie and Senator David Ige debate the issues and discuss their priorities for the state, along with their visions of the future. 
from the Waimea Community Association on Hawaii Island and moderated by Sherry Bracken. The tape-delayed forum airs tomorrow night at 6.30 on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio, HPR2. You may have been wondering how you can do more to support Hawaii Public Radio. One way would be to join the HPR Legacy Society, whose members are committed to assuring that HPR continues to thrive. You can learn more about including a gift to HPR in your will or trust at the HPR website. Just go to hawaiipublicradio.org and click on support. The HPR website. It's just a click away. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Dr. Erica Gertza, Carly uh, Weiner, and Chantel Chang. Dr. Gertza is the Associate Professor over at UH's School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology and Lead Researcher on this cruise with the Smith Ocean Institute. Carly, meanwhile, is Communications Manager for the Smith Ocean Institute, and Chantel, meanwhile, is a graduate student working on the project. And what are some of the student projects that's uh, been conducted over at Station Aloha? We'd like to find out. And, of course, we'd love your questions and comments, and that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Erica, Carly and Chantel, we want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now, Erica, maybe uh, give us a kind of a uh, synopsis of uh, what some of the research projects that uh, you've been helping some of the students uh, conduct on uh, this latest cruise. Okay. Um, well, we went out uh, to Station Aloha, which is about 60 miles offshore of Oahu, so it's to the northeast of the island, mm-hmm. and um, we had about five graduate students on board and two undergraduate students and three postdoctoral scholars, so they've just finished their PhD. Mm. Um, and so there were a variety of different things going on and people at different stages of their careers in terms of training in ocean science. And so some of those people who were just getting started are undergraduates. This is the first time they'd ever been to sea, so it was a chance for them to just see what this looks like. Um, and then there were uh, the five graduate students also ranged from folks that were just starting and, and trying out experiments and seeing how that works to people who were... Um, quite far along in their dissertation and so they did we're doing experiments that will go into their will be published products and, mm-hmm. and become part of the scientific literature um, and so in terms of the different um, projects that people were doing on board uh, I was working on um, and many of the people were involved in a project looking at um, diversity trying to develop a new technique using DNA sequencing to assess uh, the diversity of these invertebrate communities out at Station Aloha um, and that's important because we're um, it would be a technique we could use uh, to try to track changing communities in response to climate change which is something we have a hard time getting data to understand mm-hmm. so um, so that was our goal we were looking at um, collecting material from the surface down to 1500 meters and are hoping to use that we're working on that now actually working up the material um, there were other people on board who were uh, looking at grazing experiments. They're trying to understand for these small invertebrates what their role is in food webs, how much um, they might consume of phytoplankton, uh, and trying to quantify that and also just learn where they are in the water column. We don't know very much about them and you know w- what types of features they might be uh, associated with in the water column. Um, then we also um, had someone who was working on fluorescence. This was a really exciting project mm-hmm. on board, um, looking uh, looking for animals that fluoresce and trying to understand who fluoresces and why they might do that and what areas of their bodies fluoresce. So that was a very exploratory, kind of exciting uh, marine biology project. Um, 
actually, and there was also a geology group on board, but we are, all of us were involved in more mm. of the biological components of the cruise. Now, you know, we've, uh, we've talked a little bit about Station Aloha, and uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, give our listeners a little sense of what is, what is the attraction of this place called Station Aloha? Um, well, actually, it's a so it's a, a time series. It's an area that we've been studying for a long period of time since 1988, and so it's um, the HOT program, the Hawaiian Ocean Time Series program, has been going out there on a, a quasi monthly basis um, for several decades, right? To to look at uh, the communities there. It's been focused on uh, biogeochemistry heavily, um, and so our interest in going out there was was to access all the prior information that has been conducted at that site. So um, people have looked at the zooplankton communities there mm-hmm. um, in the past, and so there's something is known about you know what what species we think are there and what their their changes look like across season and across interannual variability as well. So so we that was our, re, our the purpose for us going out there was to try to work at it in an area where something was previously known. And there's a, there's already uh, some pretty uh, sophisticated technology that's that's there located uh, and and actually connected via fiber optics, right? Yeah, there is. There's an observatory. Um, um, there's also because there's so frequent cruises, that data also comes online pretty quickly. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's quite a lot of information there that's there. Um, and so we were just going out. They do for, in terms of the the metazoan plankton communities, which are our focus. They um, they are usually only doing the routine sampling in the upper ocean, about the top uh, 175 meters or so. And so on our cruise, we really wanted to get down into the deep sea and look at changes across depth. And so we actually. Uh, we're going much deeper than their regular sampling program, um, down to about 1,500 meters. So that's almost halfway down mm-hmm. the ocean's depth, actually. So there's huge gradients in what organisms live there and the densities of organisms and the diversity. So that's that was a focus for us. And we on this show cover quite a bit of marine biology news, um, recent, recent, recent studies on microorganisms, and certainly the significant um, uh, funding that the University of Hawaii recently received to focus on ocean microorganisms, the largest mm-hmm. in UH history. And then even before that, we were talking about a study on whales and whale fall and, you know, how they support. So this is definitely up our alley. Now, Carly, we previously talked about the fall core. Now, I know the average uh, Honolulu citizen, at least, is maybe focused on that Russian mega yacht that was parked and it had all these, it just looked like a spaceship. But I thought... (laughs) That from our show that the Falkor is a remarkable vessel and with the Schmidt Ocean Institute's backing has also has cutting edge technology on it and um, it's actually part of a global mission I think that's going around and making it available to research projects around the world. Um, what was the emphasis uh, for the Schmidt Ocean Institute with the University of Hawaii? I mean why was that the specific <laughs> partner and, and why spend so much time here in the island? Great question. So Schmidt Ocean Institute actually has open call for proposals every year in December. And so people can submit uh, interest. Scientists from all around the world can submit what kind of research they'd like to do aboard our ship. We offer amazing uh, resources and all kinds of technology on board Falkor. And uh, we go through a very stringent peer review process. And so those applications are then reviewed and go out for blind review from several different scientists. We come back and we look at where those those uh, applications fall out, and then we map based on the highest ranked applications where we're going to be going. So it just worked out that we had quite a few very strong 
um, applications from the University of Hawaii. And so we actually had seven cruises in 2014 with university. Um, this was the sixth one, and we will be doing one again in uh, the fall, actually, at Mariana's Trench with Dr. Jeff Drazen. Uh, what was unique, though, about this particular cruise was the third student cruise. So we did three student cruises with the University of Hawaii. Um, so we were able to train PhD graduate and undergraduate students. They could come on board, get some experience going out to see, use some of the research equipment, and um, perhaps even try some of their own research. So Carly, you know, when we uh, first had the uh, uh, folks from the Falkor come on, we had uh, Jimbo Duncan, uh, and he joined us. And uh, at that time, it was interesting in, in, in the just the mere fact that the uh, Falkor was going to be here in Hawaii for that extended period of time. But what's more interesting now is that, uh, Carly, you're actually a permanent employee of uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute and located here in Hawaii. That kind of gives me an idea that maybe there's a, a future for, you know, Falkor's visit and, and maybe uh, activity uh, here in the islands. Well, they certainly won't be visiting just for me, but I'm very oh, excited okay. <laughs> uh, to be part of Schmidt Ocean Institute. We do have some follow-up visits already scheduled. We are actually building a new hybrid remotely operated vehicle um, in partnership with Hui Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Mm -hmm. And the really exciting thing is we're hoping that um, once we get through the draft phase and we build the ROV, that we'll be doing some ocean depth testing here in Hawaii. And so um, this will be the first place that we'll test it, and we're hoping to come back uh, late 2015 to do that. Sounds good. Now, speaking of graduate students and students on the cruise, Chantel, you were in this most recent student cruise. Now, Erica mentioned some. It was their first time at, at sea, but others are kind of old hats. Uh, were you new to actually being at sea for research, or uh, was this just a different ship for the same amount of work? Well, this is my second uh, research cruise that I've been on, but I'm a new graduate student. I just started the program at UH in January. So, yeah, it was really different from the last research cruise that I went on. It, every cruise is so different, and it was awesome to be able to see all the science in action. It was totally a different. Uh, I played different roles on the ship compared to the last one. So it's really an, an awesome learning experience. So was the uh, cruise that you had gone on previously on, on the Falkor? No, it was on Hi'ialakai. Ah, yes. Yeah. So how would you uh, uh, c contrast the two vessels? <laughs> um, uh, be honest, be honest. Well, we've us. heard a lot about yeah. the accommodations and the equipment mm -hmm. on the Falkor, so that must have been exciting for you. Yes, it was very comfy. I, I think <laughs> we had, you know, the memory foam type of mattresses, which is... Uh, very different from Hialakai. It's like I don't know how to compare it. It's, it's just probably, like you can compare it maybe like a, a board versus like a, <laughs> <laughs> like a mattress. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so and what was uh, what was your research focus? What was the the project that you were executing aboard the Falkor? So actually, I wasn't able to direct research of my own. Mm -hmm. I was helping out on a few other the the other research projects going on. Yeah, I was able to use. Um, uh, well, I was able to. I found that when you were on the cruise, um, you know, it was wonderful to be able to be on the ship and see all the students doing work. Uh, it was 24 hours, so mm -hmm. people were working daytime and nighttime. Mm -hmm. And I remember going into the wet lab one time and seeing Chantal, <laughs> you know, it was late at night working and. Um, 
you know, they just bring up the brought up the mock nest, which is one of the things that we used on the ship to look at some of the tiny microscopic organisms in the water. Um, and we had pulled up um, what did you call, what did we call it a, a lantern fish or one of those deep fish that that you don't get to see that often. Mm. And that was one of the really interesting yeah. things that I, I I wasn't expecting to see that. And you were very helpful in showing that to me. And that was really <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, it was really cool to see some of the really deep fish come up. You know, they're just so different from anything that I've ever seen. Um, they're really soft-bodied, really dark, and some of them have um, photophore, these, photophores, these things that are... They, light up. They light up, yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious when you... Actually, go in as a team. Uh, how do you? I, I would imagine that the guys that are uh, maybe in their postdoctoral sort of roles, they pretty much know what it is that they got to do, what experiments they have to conduct. For the for the um, younger, uh, let's say, teams that are going onto the ship, how do you determine what role you play versus somebody else? Is that something that you decide on the ship itself, or do you sort of discuss that prior to going on to the to the vessel? It was a little bit of a surprise for me. I wasn't quite sure what to expect, mm-hmm. but um, I was basically just, you know, an extra hand. There's always, you know, tons of buckets all around <laughs> and just lots of uh, seawater to be filtered. So, <laughs> I was um, about to say, if you spent more time in the lab or if you got a lot of um, out in the open sea or, you know, out in the air. I got both, actually. So the net that Carly was talking about, the mockness, is a multiple opening and closing net. And it's really cool. Um, and a big net. It's a meter by a meter. Mm-hmm. And it get, it opens and closes at different depths so you can get those depth stratified samples. So anyway, I was able to be at the very um, front lines of the action uh, while deploying the mockness. Uh, I got this orange belt on and I had a hard hat and life vest on and I they took down the ropes right next or right by the stern so it was pretty scary with the boat bouncing mm-hmm. and I had to uh, get the net in and out safely mm-hmm. um, but were, were you um, <clears throat> did you overcome seasickness or did you ever <laughs> maybe some people don't even have that problem at all but uh, what was your adjustment period for being out on the open ocean how did you know I got seasick? Oh, I, I mean, I, I, I've been on little, you know, inner island cruises, and you know, just the, I just have to make sure that I'm looking forward and, and making sure that the the breeze is in my face because if I feel any any of this sort of lateral movement, I get a little woozy. You know what's so funny? On my previous research cruise, which was 26 days to the northwestern Hawaiian mm-hmm, Islands mm-hmm. and Johnston Atoll, I didn't get seasick for a day. I didn't need any medicine, Dramamine, or anything to be okay. But on this research cruise, for some reason, on the first day, as soon as we uh, passed the the leeward side of the island and headed north, then it started to get a little bit rocky. And then we're in the middle of a lunch meeting and and Erica goes, you know, if if you're not feeling well, you can go. And so I was the first one to stand up and I went straight (laughs) to my bed or actually the bathroom. I I thought maybe went, you know, like over the railing or something. (laughs) Uh, luckily, they have uh, yeah a lot of bathrooms. It, this ship was so nice. Um, but anyway, I ended up staying in bed. I skipped dinner. It took about uh, 12 hours to get um, 
to get adjusted to the rolling of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Erica, Erica, I love the idea that you have um, researchers from both, you know, from all ranges, from uh, graduate students to postdoc to mm-hmm. professional researchers. Right. And um, tell me a little bit more about that interaction. I mean, I would imagine that this creates some really interesting opportunities for a veteran researcher to help a new researcher and maybe think about what they're doing in new and different ways. That's right. I mean, that's that was really the goal of a student training cruise is to, to facilitate facilitate that interaction and enable, you know, people at all stages to learn, whether that's uh, the postdocs who are learning how to mentor people who are younger than them and get experience helping them figure out how to do what they want to do, um, or or very elementary levels of figuring out just the basics of, okay, we're working on watches, and when do I need to be there, and, you know, what time do I need to be there, and what are my responsibilities? So as a chief scientist, that's part of my job is to, to sort of assign roles and make sure everyone has some understanding of what they're places in this in the schedule for the cruise Mm -hmm. so um but yeah it's incredibly rewarding to see uh people at all levels kind of growing and learning during that experience so 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 erica one of the things that i'm kind of curious about is that you know with the different levels of student involvement are some of them working on you know sort of research postdoctoral research that's part of their let's say dissertation or careers uh, in their you know academic field and then for the the younger students is it more or less a, uh, a semester project that they're working on how do you sort of work out what um, you know what people's dedication time frame wise it's variable yeah across the students so some students they really um come to see, and that's pretty much their C experience, and they're not working necessarily on those samples after that. Some of those students work on my lab anyway on other projects. Um, some of them, um, Chantelle was getting experience. She's actually a modeler. She's a mathematician. So this was her opportunity to um, really see what these organisms look like that she's going to be working with in a computational setting. Mm. Um, and uh, then we had another student, uh, Michelle Youngbluth, who was a, a fairly senior-level graduate student who was trying out some new experimental setups that she's going to see with me this fall in September and October will be on a, a really long transect cruise throughout the entire Atlantic. And so this was a chance. She collected um, a bunch of new data that helped her figure out what volumes of seawater she would need on this next cruise. Um, and she will work up those samples, and they will be part of that same publication. So that will be part of her chapter, a chapter of her dissertation. Um, but also it was an important test ground for her because she has a much longer um, program sampling program coming up. And mm-hmm. so it was a chance mm-hmm. to make sure that that's really successful and she has a good experimental protocol in hand. So, yeah, so we definitely, there will be several published products that mm. come out of the samples we collected on this cruise. Now, so, Carly, um, so you had mentioned that there, there could be upcoming research working on remotely operated vehicles, and uh, this is the six of seven cruises, the next one to the, the Marianas Trench. Um, just to give us a broad idea, because, again, the focus of this research was microorganisms. Um, out of those six, I mean, what were some of the other focus areas that uh, constituted a cruise? Uh, Glad you asked that. So we had three devoted student cruises, um, and they differed very much. One of them was working, looking at uh, whales and whale ecology and some of their feeding uh, behaviors. We had this one that we've been talking about today, and we had one that was focusing on mapping, and actually some of those students that participated in full 36-day mapping cruises to the Papahanaumokuokea Marine National Monument. Um, And so they were doing some really, really excellent mapping work up there with Chris Kelly and um, um, our MTs, as you mentioned, um, our mm-hmm. marine technicians, you mm-hmm. spoke uh, with Jimbo, they're heavily involved in that as well, and did a fantastic job mapping some beautiful uh, things in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands that had not been mapped previously. 
Um, our final cruise in Honolulu that just finished uh, following the student cruise was to Loihi Sea Mount with Dr. Brian Glazer, and we actually brought AV Sentry from Woods Hole um, out on the ship, and we're able to do some mapping and photographs of 5,000 meters below, so looking at that underwater volcano as well. So we really have a huge, expansive uh, repertoire of research that we're doing, and uh, really the sky is the limit. And so, I think we covered that Loihi research because it was, a, or we had re- we had covered a story in, probably in the last month about the rust generating kind of exactly. uh, ecosystem, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the iron mats over there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to find out a little bit more about uh, how I guess Schmidt Olsen Institute and the relationship with UH is sort of evolving, and I think it's probably forming a pretty tight relationship. So we want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Dr. Erica Gertze and Carly Weiner and. Chantel Chang about the Schmidt Ocean Institute and their explorations aboard the research vessel Falkor and what's going to be coming up for that vessel outside of Hawaii. Of course, we'd love to hear your questions. If you have any, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, you can reach us at 877-941-3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. What first got me started was actually my parents. It was just daily morning routine when we were eating breakfast to listen to Morning Edition every day. Eventually, when I grew older, that became even more important to me. If I moved to a new location, I could always find NPR on the local station. And that would sort of be my link to that regular news stream. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. On Saturday, July 26th, slide guitar master Stephen George and multi-instrumentalist Larry Spaulding bring the blues to HPR's Atherton Studio. Enjoy these veteran bluesmen in an evening of traditional country blues, contemporary songwriting, and a bit of Zydeco for added spice. That's July 26th at 7.30 p.m. For tickets, call 955-8821 during business hours or purchase online at hprtickets.org. I went back to our Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Dr. Erica Goetze, Carly Weiner, and Chantel Chang about student-led research at Station Aloha. And, of course, uh, there's always some interesting things happening out at Station Aloha. And, of course, we wanted to find out a little bit about the... Uh, you know, the evolving relationship with uh, the Schmidt Ocean Institute and the University of Hawaii. Of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. So, uh, Carly, what, you know, I mean, we've always, uh, we, we're always thrilled to see these cool technology uh, vessels coming into town and, and building relationships with UH and, and having such uh, interesting research uh, as a result of it. And, of course, uh, with long-term you know, involvement in, in Hawaii, I, I think it's, uh, it's cool to see Schmidt Ocean Institute uh, you know, being around. And is this something that is going to uh, continue into the future? And, and is there a, a relationship there evolving? And, and what, can, what can we call that relationship? So we certainly love working with the University of Hawaii and have had a very positive experience being here on the last six cruises and have developed some great friendships with a lot of the PIs and scientists that have come on board. Mm-hmm. Um, our research is directed by the applications that we receive, and so we call broadly 
internationally for uh, research applications, as I mentioned before, uh, in December. So every year we try and appeal to international audiences, um, really focusing not just in the United States, but all over the world, Australia, Asia Pacific, for applications. For this year, for 2014, it worked out that we had um, quite a heavy load of research applications that were peer-reviewed and got uh, very high Mm -hmm. uh, scoring. So it worked out very well. Um, Sort of serendipitous as well, we had our 2013 symposium in Honolulu. And so Honolulu has been the home for Falkor for quite a few months now. Um, We really hope to come back. We do have some plans to come back, as I mentioned, Mm -hmm. to test the ROV. And we encourage any University of Hawaii scientists or students, uh, you know, any stage in their career to submit applications. And certainly you would be open to other uh, research institutions in Hawaii, I would imagine. Absolutely, So, So, Erica, I mean, I guess that kind of throws the the ball into your court. Uh, That's right. Uh, you have to come up with the, the great ideas and research that would attract the you know the Falkor back here. How confident are you are you of doing that? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's the Falkor is a terrific resource. So I guess just to comment on the on the role of the Schmidt Ocean Institute. Um, it, Getting to sea is actually quite hard. It's incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm, and so these mm-hmm. research vessels, they cost on the order of twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a day. So, um, so ex- for example, for students, that's really a challenge for them to have access to sure. that infrastructure. Sure. I mean, to do yeah, their work. sleeping on a board versus that's sleeping right. on, you know, a foam and you, cushion. I mean. and the, well, and the person, but also just the personnel cost and mm-hmm. the whole, shi- you know, the whole operations of the ship. So, so what, what Schmidt Ocean Institute is providing is essentially, fr- essentially to the science community, a free, you know, cruise, essentially, free access to the ocean, which is an amazing resource. And so that's hugely attractive to us. And the point is for us is to figure out how to leverage that resource to do the kind of science we, we want to do and work with other funding agencies to, to also support the personnel costs and a- analysis side of the material we just collected. Um, but it's an incredible resource. So, 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 so yeah, there's, no, all, there's a lot of interest for sure in the science community in trying to, and there's no other, to take advantage of it. There's mm-hmm. no other influence that you can, uh, you know, sort of uh, extend to Carly here that would influence the, <laughs> you know, the fall core being in, in our water, waters. No, we just need to write a proposal. <laughs> So no, uh, no Leonard's Bakery uh, goodies or anything. I see, I see. But now, I, yeah, yeah. I, I do think there's a lot that remains to be explored in our region, and so there's certainly a lot left to do. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm sure that there's lots of projects that could be Good. profitably done here. Now, um, Chantal, I'm glad you got over your, your motion sickness. And although in this case you didn't specifically drive a research project, that might be in your in the cards for your future. But one thing that, that did strike me that I, I just perhaps as an aside that I was curious about, how how is your how does that work, your research with mathematical modeling versus organ, natural <laughs> organisms in the ocean? I mean, uh, how does that even come up as something you're passionate about? I'm curious about that. <laughs> Well, I'm passionate about it because, well, I was first passionate about math. And then when I took an oceanography class at the University of Hawaii, I was like, wow, there's so much math in oceanography. You know, you can model a wave with math and physics. Mm -hmm. And you can also model uh, copepods, these little crustaceans in the ocean. um, If you, you know, you have a model and you... you, um, Think of each little individual copepod and see how it moves through time and how it grows and if it reproduces and if it gets eaten. So you have all these probabilities that you, you're playing with and you're trying to model real life. Mm-hmm. So are you are you uh, leveraging what you've learned on the ship to influence the sort of the computational models that you are building? 
Well, yes, I think、um, being on the ship gave me, you know, a first-hand、um, view of of what these copepods look like and how they behave. And although, you know.、Um, I think it's really important as a, a biophysical modeler to be able to understand that biology, and、um, so I've never seen these before, you know, except for in lab. So seeing it out in the ocean was super cool.、Mm-hmm. What would be an example of how you would, let's say, visualize,、uh, you know, sort of this copepod population? What would be so? I guess an example of. Uh, uh, let's say a visualization. What would what would be? Would you show the life cycle? Maybe、mm-hmm. the evolution? Maybe the migration? What would you try to model? Yes, all of that. It's、mm. really complicated. There's so many variables. So yeah, I would.、Um, I'm trying to work on a global model.、Um, there are a lot of regional models, but global model is,、um, I'd say, a lot more complicated.、Um, so I would want to place all these little. Copepods all around the different oceans and、um, see with the the ocean circulation and the currents where they move, and then I would want to keep track of their age to see you know when they become、uh, if they're able to reproduce、mm-hmm. and、um, mm-hmm. you know if they get bigger then they might be more、uh, susceptible to being eaten by certain predators. So it affects you know their mortality rate according to how、uh, what life stage they're in. Well, I love the connection of math to oceanography or biology. You know,、um, I've always been intimidated by math in general, but I'm always intrigued by life sciences and the fact that they can intersect in、mm-hmm, that way.、Mm-hmm. I think is great. Now, Carly, one of the things you mentioned is、uh, these multiple opening nets that were used to collect samples. But uh, uh, for the nerd in me. There's a lot of equipment on the Falkor that is not available anywhere else, or that is very difficult for, say,、uh, a research institution to get their hands on.、Um, was there a specific tool that you saw get got the most attention that maybe a researcher said, "Well, now that I know that exists, I want to do other research." Well, as I mentioned, our mapping capabilities are fantastic on board Falkor, and、um, I don't actually have a background in a lot of that engineering. And so, I would encourage people to go check out the ship. You can do a tour of the ship on our website, and you know, actually see some of the equipment that we have on board.、Um, our multi-beam mapping, though, is really great. And one of the th- neat things about Schmidt Ocean Institute is if you have a research project that you want to do on board, and we don't have the capability, or we don't have Something that exactly matches up with what what you want will work with you. So we've worked with scientists in the past to develop new things. For example, this cruise coming up in December at Mariana's Trent,、uh, we have landers that. Didn't really do exactly what the scientists wanted us to do, and so we're redeveloping some of those landers, which will go down、uh, full ocean depth to eleven thousand meters to be able to accommodate some of that work.、Mm-hmm. Now, the、uh, I was I was following some of the tweets that the、uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute、uh, were were tweeting, and I think、uh, they've、uh, left Hawaii waters and are now in in San Francisco.、Uh, I guess they're in in dry dock. Yes, that's correct. So、um, after、uh, every other year, we take a little breather and upgrade the ship to make sure it is、uh, as comfortable as we want it to be for our scientists, and to do some upgrades and、um, restore some things on board. And we're going to be up and running again early fall, heading、uh, towards Pompeii.、Mm-hmm. Now, Erica, how about to you in terms of、uh, as the lead researcher overseeing a number of different research projects? The mapping—I'm I, I, certainly a map geek too. I can see the appeal of that. 
uh, um, were there any tools that uh, you were excited to see UH researchers or researchers you work with taking advantage of? Well, for me, I have to admit the Mach Ness is the the instrument that really turns me on. So I, I'm it, I'm not a I work on organisms that are in the water column. So in terms of mapping, I'm not that interested in the seafloor because my organisms are well off the bottom. But um, this Mach Ness system, as she mentioned, this multiple opening, closing net, and environmental sensing system, um, is really cutting edge in that it's constantly um, connected to the ship. We can see where it is in real time, um, and we can very much target what exactly what we want to sample. And it's actually in terms of depth. So we we can open, we can close nets, excuse me, on the way up as we're sampling and sample discrete strata or discrete layers of the ocean and collect communities in each layer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, exciting because there's a lot of gradients across depth, both biological and, and also physical parameters and chemical parameters in the ocean. Um, and so that instrument is actually not taken out all that often. So it was a, an exciting chance to use it and to expose students to it. And, and because it's multi-opening, I would imagine, I'm trying to visualize it in my head, uh, before if you wanted yeah. to get a sample at different depths, you would have to send something all the way down to a depth, collect it, bring it all the way back up. Well, you'd have to figure out how to close it, too. I see. But in this, it sounds like you can collect several samples in one ascent. Right. So let me just describe it. It's um, it's a system that it has a metal outer frame, and there are 10 nets mounted on this frame. And it has a, a, a suite of in-situ sensors at the top of the package. And so um, uh, you essentially send it all the way down with one net open, and these nets are connected. So that then when you send uh, you signal from a computer console on the ship to essentially drop a bar that will close one net and open the next net. Mm-hmm. And because you're talking in constant communication with it, you can see that that's happened. You can see exactly what depth it's at, and it allows you to target specific features you might be interested in or get exactly the depths that you want. So, the, so. Uh, the opening of, the, of that net at whatever depth, I mean, it's a, it's a constant, right? I mean, th- these nets aren't, aren't like larger or smaller. So at each level, it's just kind of a constant lid that opens and closes? Um, yeah, the nets are all set. Um, they're all the same size. Mm-hmm. They're they're mounted on the frame ahead of time. And so there's just a bar that uh, slides down. You can picture these are um, soft material. So when the bar clo- when the bar drops mechanically, uh, it's closing one net and then opening the next mm-hmm. one. And so then you can so sample then, the so next then it's just, uh, um, Are there just particular organisms that you would be collecting as a result of mm-hmm. this net? Yeah, exactly. So there are large gradients I mentioned um, in terms of diversity, which species you find there and the density of species. So biomass and abundance, there's huge gradients in the ocean. So most of the organisms in the ocean are in the surface in the Mm -hmm, upper 200 mm -hmm. meters or so. And things are actually really dilute when you get into the deep sea. And Mm so, you know, we towed for hours, an hour and a half to collect this tiny amount of material in an eight ounce jar. Whereas in the surface, you know, you can tow for 15 minutes and have more plankton than you know what to do with. Mm -hmm. You're just overloaded, you know, a bucket full of we had trichodesmium bloom out there so it was um, really concentrated plankton near the surface so so you can you know you can sample all those different communities and and so work with we, them. you know we, you mentioned the copepods what's the uh, relative size from uh, plankton versus a copepod so, I so mean, it's not something that I could catch with my fishing pole right well yeah <laughs> no it, they're small so let me just start out um, plankton are um, 
organisms, they're defined by having very weak swimming ability. So mm-hmm. that's what defines what a, what a plankton is. And so zooplankton are basically the animal fraction of the plankton. And so things that are planktonic can range from anything that's like a bacteria, really mm-hmm. small, up to, you know, large jellies you might be familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. meter in bell size, for example. But they're the, not very good swimmers, so they can be quite large. A, and a jelly would be considered a plankton? Yeah, macroplankton. Oh. Because it doesn't, it can't swim all that quickly relative to the ocean current right, speeds. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a drifter, an ocean drifter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's kind of what plankton are. And copepods are, are one of the most common types of zooplankton in the ocean. And so if you go pretty much anywhere in the ocean and, do, and drag a net through, you would find that somewhere between about 60 and uh, 99% of what you catch are, are copepods in terms of numerical abundance and also biomass. Mm-hmm. So they're a very important group of the zooplankton. And they're crustaceans. They're... They're tasty and they're good fish food. Mm. So, now, Carly, before we run out of time, I I, I am really impressed with sort of the global vision of uh, the Schmidt Ocean Institute and its making available this incredible resource to research around the world. Um, uh, can you give me kind of uh, an idea of that objective of, of what what the Schmidt Ocean Institute sees as a success? Now. Um, uh, Erica mentioned, you know, there's going to be published output as a result of the research. Certainly there's the educational aspect to having the students on board during the student cruises. But um, what overall is the objective? I mean, why was the significant investment made and made available to other people? So there's a couple answers to that. Uh, first and foremost is the Schmidt Ocean Institute really is interested in advancing technology in oceanography and really pushing forward some of those high-risk uh, or newer projects that typically wouldn't always get funded necessarily because we don't know what's going on. And I'm really pushing that technology forward in order to push our knowledge of oceanography and some of that um, intelligent observation uh, Um, making that a real priority. And not only that, but also sharing that information. So all of our research cruises that we do, um, the data will become available publicly so that people can follow up with that. If other scientists are interested in some of that data, we're very interested in sharing that information. And lastly, we also are really interested in making sure that, you know, that next generation of oceanographers get that opportunity. And as you can see from the student cruises, and even when we don't have students student cruises, PIs and other uh, research expeditions usually have several students that are learning and um, are on board. So again, where can someone go if they wanted to follow the adventures of the uh, Falkor? Oh, please come follow the adventures of Falkor, uh, schmidtocean.org, or you can just Google Schmidt Ocean Institute. Um, You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Twitter page, or Google Plus page. Sounds good. And Erica, where can uh, people follow the research uh, you're doing? Great. Um, you can find it either through the Department of Oceanography at the University of Hawaii, or um, I also have a, a, a private page that's really a professional page, www.marinezooplankton.com. Okay. And we'll, be sure to, we'll be sure to put that up on our show notes. And, and uh, Chantel, are, are your uh, computational modeling of uh, copepods going to also be put, uh, put up on the web somewhere so we can look at them? They will someday, though. Someday, maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> okay, well, then we'll just have to keep track of you yeah. then. Yes. <laughs> well, um, okay, Dr. Uh, Erica uh, Gertza and, uh, is the associate professor, and Carly Weiner is the communications manager, and Chantel Chang is a grad student over at SOAS. And, uh, of course, uh, we want to thank you all for joining us today. 
Thank you for thank having you. us. Thanks very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we were going to learn about rehabilitation robotics. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at news at bitemarks.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Crystal Fighters and a song I kept hearing on the plane as I was uh, flying through the air called L.A. Calling. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Sing in song when you're